Ukrainian officials say a Russian missile attack on a civilian area in the western part of the country has killed at least four people. It's Thursday, July 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in China to try to ease tensions with the U.S. Also this hour, the discovery of a small bag of cocaine in the White House while the president and his family were away. And some lawmakers want to crack down on fentanyl users and dealers, but a new study suggests that could lead to more harm. If the goal is to save lives, then we have pretty good reason to believe that criminalization isn't really serving that purpose very well. Plus, the nation's first new nuclear power plant in four decades is about to go online in Georgia. Forecast says sunny, warm today, highs near 90. It's 7.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has arrived in Beijing for a four-day visit. The Biden administration says her trip will focus on efforts to reestablish ties between the U.S. and China, the world's two largest economies. At least four people have been killed and more than 30 others injured in a Russian missile strike on a residential building in western Ukraine. Dr. Sasha Dovchik is a curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London. She's currently in Lviv and tells the BBC it's unusual for the city to be hit in this way. This city is considered one of the safest in Ukraine, but as we know, when Russia declared its full-scale war on Ukraine, there is no such safe place in the country anymore, unfortunately. The mayor of Lviv says it's the largest attack on the city since the Russian military invaded Ukraine last year. President Biden is heading to South Carolina today to promote investments in green energy. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, it's part of an effort by his administration to play up the economic windfall of his policies. President Biden and his administration are working hard to get credit for thousands of jobs expected to be created as a result of the Chips and Science Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and the Social Services and Climate Package, dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act. Thus far, the White House says companies have announced some $500 billion in investments as a result of those laws. In South Carolina, Biden will tout up to 600 jobs expected to come from newly announced private investments by the green energy manufacturers in and flex. South Carolina is an early primary state in next year's presidential election, home to two of the GOP candidates and to a congressional delegation that opposed the bills Biden is celebrating. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The state of Maine has become the latest to end what critics call prison gerrymandering. NPR's Hansi Lowang reports the governor of Maine has signed a new state law that changes where prisoners have to be counted when redrawing maps of state legislative districts. Since the first U.S. Census back in 1790, the federal government has counted incarcerated people as residents of where they're locked up. Local mapmakers have used those prisoner counts to redraw voting districts. But Maine now joins close to 20 states that have come up with policies that require prisoner counts to be reallocated to their last usual place of residence before they were incarcerated. The change in Maine is set to go into effect after the 2030 census. Advocates for this change say it's a way to prevent redistricting officials from using prisoner counts to boost the populations of prison towns and give those areas more political power. Hansi Luong, NPR News. This is NPR. 
Hotel workers in Southern California are back on the job for now after staging a walkout over the weekend. Employers and the workers' union are working to resolve a number of sticking points, including better health care benefits, wages, and higher pension contributions. The union warns that another walkout could happen at any time. For the first time, a female professional athlete has been diagnosed with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. NPR's Tilda Wilson reports the brain injury most commonly occurs among long-term contact sports athletes. Heather Anderson was an Australian rules football player who died by suicide last year at age 28. Her family says she suffered as many as five concussions over the course of her career, but wasn't aware of the condition during her life. CTE can only be diagnosed posthumously. The traumatic brain injury can cause depression, memory loss, and major personality changes. A number of NFL players, including Aaron Hernandez, who also died by suicide, were subsequently diagnosed with CTE. In a paper published in Acta Neuropathologica, researchers wrote that women have greater susceptibility to concussions. Given this and the increase in popularity of female contact sports, they write that there's an urgent need to institute policies that minimize traumatic brain injuries. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading lower this morning. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The green line of the T between Leachmere and Union Station will stay open through the summer. The state planned to close that new section of the line for several weeks starting this month to repair a bridge. The state yesterday delayed the closure until September after some pushback from local lawmakers. The entire B branch of the green line is still scheduled to shut down on July 17th for almost two weeks. Members of the state's congressional delegation want more information about a factory explosion in Newburyport. The blast in May killed one worker and injured four others at the Sequins PCI synthesis plant. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey issued a letter to the pharmaceutical company that operates the factory. They say the company needs to explain how the explosion happened and outline steps to prevent further problems. The owners of the factory were cited in the past for safety and environmental issues. Massachusetts and other northeast states plan to build a lot more renewable energy in the coming decades, but the existing web of big power lines that move electricity over long distances is not large enough to handle it. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports that the state is now asking the federal government for help. Electrical transmission may not be the most exciting topic, but improving the system is critical for the clean energy transition. That's because the region needs more transmission lines to bring renewable energy to population centers and to share power between places like New England and New York or New Jersey. Jason Marshall works on federal and regional energy affairs in Massachusetts. He says building new transmission lines in the Northeast is challenging and expensive. But luckily, the federal government has money set aside to help. The vision really here was was to proactively look to establish a first-of-its-kind model for interregional transmission planning. Marshall says the states are interested in both onshore and offshore transmission planning. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. A longtime Boston city councilor will not seek re-election. Michael Flaherty has been on the council for 20 years. He planned to run for re-election for his at-large seat in November, but Flaherty says he's ready to start a new chapter, which he says does not include plans to run for public office. The time is eight minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. In sports, Red Sox beat the Texas Rangers 4-2 to at Fenway last night. The teams will play the rubber match of their three-game series tonight. In our forecast, an air quality alert goes into effect later today for Boston, the North Shore, and the Merrimack Valley. It'll be sunny, hot today, highs around 90. Clear tonight, lows in the 60s. Sunshine again tomorrow with temperatures in the upper 80s. And it looks like we have a chance of scattered showers both days of the weekend. It's 72 degrees right now in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. In a few minutes, the questions raised by the discovery of cocaine in the White House West Wing. But first, many have tried to replace Twitter since Elon Musk took over the platform. Late yesterday, Facebook's parent company, Meta, made its move. It's a service called Threads. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us to discuss. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning, Rob. So Threads sounds like a not-so-hip clothing line, but it is, in fact, another social media site. What's it like? Yeah, no shocker. It feels a whole lot like Twitter, but it has some advantages over a run-of-the-mill Twitter rival in the form of data, right? Meta has a lot of this. When you download the Threads app, you can instantly port over all of your Instagram photos, your Hmm. bio, all of your Instagram friends if... Uh, all of your friends on Instagram join threads, then you could sort of keep your your network that you have on Instagram. Now, in terms of technology itself, Rob, for 2023, this is not exactly a breakthrough innovation. For a social media app, actually, this feels very 2010, Hmm. but people are still joining. I think that really shows just how much frustration there is with the current state of Twitter. In its first seven hours, more than 10 million people have joined threads, and people have already found some pretty funny names for it. Some are calling it Twinstagram. Others are calling it Twitter killer. So um, we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Twitter killer. Twitter has been around for almost two decades. Why is Mark Zuckerberg doing this now? Two words, Elon Musk. Since he took over Twitter, it's been less reliable. It's been less credible. Uh, Musk's abrupt policy changes have often alienated Twitter's most loyal users. Just this past weekend, Musk capped the number of tweets non-paying users can read each day. Then he made it impossible to view tweets unless you're signed into the platform, which has now been reversed. Mm -hmm. But the damage is done for some users, Rob. Many are just fed up with Twitter. It's too chaotic and glitchy. And Musk clearly has one goal in mind, right? And that's getting more people to pay for Twitter. But people are leaving in droves. Zuckerberg sees opportunity there. Um, You know, backing up for some context here, Zuckerberg and Musk have long had a rivalry. um, And a decade ago, Zuckerberg tried to buy Twitter, but Twitter wouldn't sell. uh, And Zuckerberg has long envied Twitter for being the public square of the internet. Will threads be any different than the other attempts to replace Twitter? You might uh, know some of them uh, by name or not. Uh, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Post, the list goes on. The obvious difference here is scale. Across its apps, Meta has more than 3 billion users. 
Now the question is, can it recreate the culture of Twitter? That might be hard. Meta tried to copy TikTok with a service called Reels. That hasn't worked out so great. Um, I talked to this tech analyst named Fane Greenwood about whether Meta's Threads has a shot, and she is pretty skeptical. And it's because of something she calls the terrible uncle problem. So the terrible uncle problem is the issue that comes about when all of your relatives, your colleagues, your high school classmates are able to find you on social media. Uh-huh. Yeah, basically everyone is on Facebook, <laughs> including your terrible uncle, and right. that is a bad thing, right? <laughs> especially for younger users who see Facebook sort of as a party they would never want to go to. Younger people, especially, are turned off a platform where they feel like they have to censor what they're saying, have to modulate what they're saying because they don't want to deal with literally everybody they know commenting on their posts. Has Elon Musk responded yet to threads? Not yet. I emailed him to get a sense of how he's thinking about Meta taking a direct shot at Twitter, but I have not yet heard back. NPR's Bobby Allen. Bobby, thanks. Thanks, Rob. So another social media app, another way to stay in touch, but also another way to spread fake remedies for real diseases, to spread so-called health information that's totally wrong, or for malicious actors to try to amp up dissension by planting fake stories. Those are all types of disinformation that the Biden administration wants to fight, preferably by working with Meta and other tech companies. But for now, it is restricted from doing so by a federal judge's injunction. The Justice Department is appealing the ruling, but it is already having an impact. The Washington Post reports that the State Department canceled a meeting yesterday with Facebook officials to talk about preparations for the 2024 election. Leah Littman is a law professor at the University of Michigan who has been analyzing the issue, and she's with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning. Good morning. So you co-wrote a piece in Slate where you make it clear that you think the legal reasoning in this injunction is totally flawed. You said, for example, while there are in theory interesting questions about when and how the government can try to jawbone private entities to remove speech from their platforms, this decision doesn't grapple with any of them. And a lot of other strong words in this piece. But having said that, I want to focus on the impacts of this. What are you most concerned about? I'm most concerned about how it impedes the federal government's ability to start having these conversations about how to clamp down on misinformation in the lead up to the election. You know, those are plans that require long-term planning. And those things need to be getting off the ground now, particularly as we are seeing a proliferation of new apps like Threads. And so the federal government needs to be able to have conversations with social media companies about their content moderation policies in order to tamp down the spread of disinformation. You also talked about how that this has uh, effectively issued a prior restraint on large swaths of speech. Tell me more about that. So a prior restraint just means that the federal government or a government stops speech before it even happens. And what the district court did here is it issued an injunction that sweeps so broadly, it literally prevents the federal government from sending emails to social media companies about their content moderation policies or having meetings with social media companies about taking down Um, speech and posts. And so that prevents speech, really important speech, from ever happening. And that's what we call in law a prior restraint. And you also said it raises uh, separations of powers concerns. Could you just talk about that? So we usually think about the separation of powers as the different branches of government, the judiciary, the presidency, Congress, kind of staying in their lanes and allowing one another to function. And here you have a single district judge in Louisiana 
ordering the federal government to halt meetings with these incredibly important companies. His injunction applies to not just the State Department, which already had to cancel meetings with Facebooks, but also the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and a bunch of high-ranking federal officials. And we usually don't think that single district court judges should be able to order around the entire DHS, DOJ, and FBI. So the, the injunction's restrictions are temporary, but is, is part of the concern here that this case could end up having lasting effects on efforts to combat disinformation? They definitely could have lasting effects, but the injunction is in place at least until a court of appeals or the Supreme Court lifts it. And we don't know when that might happen. While the federal government has already filed a notice of appeal, typical appeals take you know more than a year. Now, it's possible the federal government will ask for some type of emergency relief or ask the courts to move more quickly on this case because it is so important and so destructive. But usually, you know, the typical appeal process takes a long time. Hmm. So, so this is a tip, this is a big question for a small amount of time to answer. But, but is there a concern that that there's a line at which government flagging disinformation does cross the line into censorship? Is that is that a legitimate concern? I think most people don't think that the government merely flagging disinformation crosses the line into censorship. Instead, the problem arises where the federal government is essentially bullying or coercing private companies to take down misinformation. But it's not really clear that that's what happened here. Instead, this court basically faults the federal government for having federal officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci appear on television to identify certain, you know, COVID treatments as not working. Hmm. So obviously there's a whole lot more to talk about. So hopefully we'll be doing more of that. Leah Littman's a law professor at the University of Michigan and co-host of the podcast Strict Scrutiny. Professor Littman, thank you for your time. Thank you. The U.S. Secret Service is investigating how a small bag of cocaine found its way into the west wing of the White House. At one point over the weekend, before they knew what the white pottery substance was, the White House went into lockdown and the fire department was called in. Still, it raises a lot of questions, so we've brought in NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith with more. Good morning, Tam. Good morning. What exactly did they find and how is the White House reacting? It was what is known as a dime bag of cocaine. That is a small dime-sized bag containing the white powder. And the Secret Service confirmed to me that testing on the powder found that it was, in fact, cocaine. In Washington, there's still a lot of nervousness around white powder because of the anthrax attacks in the early 2000s. But in this case, it really was just drugs, uh, which does open up other issues like how did cocaine get onto the White House grounds? Does the security posture need to change? And what might the consequences be? White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked nearly two dozen questions about it at the briefing yesterday, which arguably was more questions than it needed, uh, especially since she stuck to this one talking point. It is under investigation by the Secret Service. This is in their purview. And so we're going to allow certainly the investigation to continue. She did also note that it was discovered in a busy part of the White House. So where was it found? 
Uh, well, a spokesman for the Secret Service, Anthony Guglielmi, told me that the cocaine was found in the West Wing lobby, and that's a room just past the Marine at the West Wing entrance. Hmm. And it really does get a lot of foot traffic. People who work in the White House can bring their friends and family and special guests in for tours that go through there on the weekends and evenings when the president isn't in the Oval Office. That's one of the perks of the job. So the investigation continues. What are the chances they find the person responsible for bringing the cocaine to the White House? Guglielmi said they are in the early stages of this investigation and still trying to figure out whether it will even be possible to identify which visitor or staffer left their stash at the White House. But Jean-Pierre did add this. The president and the first lady and their family were not here this weekend, as you all reported on this. And as you also know, that they left on Friday. So the message was, don't look to the first family. The president's son, uh, Hunter, uh, has been very open in the past about his struggles in the past with cocaine. Uh, He was at Camp David over the weekend and returned to the White House with the president on Tuesday to watch the fireworks. That's NPR's White House correspondent, Tamara Keith. Thanks, Tam. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for starting your Thursday here with WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the debate over how to handle the deadly opioid fentanyl and research showing that tougher criminal penalties can cause more harm. The time is 21 minutes past 7. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world... Our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community... Workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield... Think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In our forecast, sunny today, highs near 90, 74 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. If you're a fashionista, then you probably know Aurora James for her luxurious shoes and accessories sold through her brother Veli's line. And if you're a social activist, you might know her for the 15% pledge, her effort to get major retailers to commit 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned businesses. But what you probably don't know is the incredible, sometimes brutal path she and so many other creatives have had to walk to claim their space in the world of high fashion. It's a story she tells with unsparing honesty in her new memoir, Wildflower. And she's here with us now to tell us more. Aurora James, welcome. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here. Well, yeah, we have spoken before mainly about the 15% pledge. And when I've spoken with you, you know, I've experienced you as this calm, very clear, very disciplined business person. Come to find out that you come from this really unusual background, let me put it this way, <laughs> uh-huh. that you really had to kind of scratch and claw your way to everything. You know, I think we spend so much time as humans just kind of straightening out our own costumes of identity, right, to be presentable to others. And I think for me, there's always been so many things that I wanted to achieve in my own life. And dropping out of high school, not getting into the college that I really basically didn't graduate college at all, like found myself behind bars at one point, like all of these things are not really conducive to being in the rooms that I wanted to be in, in this country. And I didn't really want to let my stumbles in the past block me from what I knew I could achieve in the future. Mm. For people who don't know your company, Brother Valleys, would you just describe, I describe it as kind of luxury accessories, but that isn't really the... That doesn't really describe it. Sure. It's so fascinating, too, right? Because the shoes don't sit on the shelf with their story. So they just look like they're luxury fashion. But what most people don't know is that I work with artisans all around the world who've been historically excluded from participating in fashion. So people in Kenya and Ethiopia and Haiti and really work with them on doing things that they've done for many generations, largely in the shadows and not being involved in in luxury fashion sector. and, And we create beautiful products. You know what? One of the points that you make over and over again in the book is that talent is distributed all over the world, but access to the resources to bring those to bear are not. Yeah. And this seems to be a lesson that you learned really early on, but it's also one that you seem to be willing to speak about very bluntly in a way that other people at your level of fashion are not. And I just wanted to ask how you first came to that conviction? Well, I spent so much time in museums, right? My mom was always taking me to museums and we would go even to, you know, indigenous reservations and watch women bead, right? And she would talk to them about the beaded patterns and what it meant to them and what level of um, expression it was. And she would tell me this Nigerian proverb, which goes, until the lion has a historian, the hunter will always be the hero. Hmm. And she said, I want you to think about the most marginalized people in the world and the fact that their archives do not exist in the books that you're going to be reading or even in a lot of the museum collections that you're going to be seeing in the way that they intended it to. And so you're going to have to seek that out. And I think because I've consumed a lot of the fashion media that we've all kind of seen, these ideas of Parisian couturiers and all of that, when I actually started traveling across Africa and seeing people who made vellies, the desert boots that I work with, or um, who were carving beads out of cow bones, like to me, that level of artistry is just as fantastic as what they're doing in Paris or what they're doing in Italy. And the only difference really was that these were hands of color in countries that we did not associate with being luxury. Well, there are a couple stories that stood out for me. It's just the assumptions that people make about artisans in Africa. Like they're sitting on a dirt floor or it has to be like bug infested or the, the work has to be. One time you were applying for a fellowship and one of the judges um, rejected your application because she said that the fact that you, the artisans, some of the artisans could do the work at home 
meant that they could be abusing their kids, like they could be making the kids do the work. And you're like, wait, what? You know, it means that they don't have to hire childcare. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So that part stood out. And then the other one was about later on, as your business became more developed, somebody who created a really um, onerous business loan for you that actually wound yeah. up costing you more than you got from it. My grandmother used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I would always say, wow, that's so dark, right? But when we think about it as consumers, and I talk also in the book about how American donated clothing has actually killed out almost 70% of the manufacturing across Africa. I was told to donate all my clothes to, you know, quote unquote, poor people in Africa. When I was younger, I remember doing that in spring cleaning, and I had no idea that there'd be all of these American clothes and landfills there and it would be killing out their local manufacturing industry, right? It was well-intentioned, but the end result was not good. And so for me, it's much more interesting to actually empower a community to make shoes and then they can decide how they want to utilize their own resources that they then have. When it comes to something like the loan that I took, it was a $70,000 loan that ended up costing me over a million dollars to get out of. Mm, God. Truly so depressing. The more work that I did after the fact, the more and more I started realizing how commonplace it actually is and that female entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs of color are the ones that are most adversely affected by predatory loans. And I think over the years, a lot of people have really kind of applauded this idea that I started this business with $3,500 and bootstrapped it and, and you know, now vice president of the CFDA and all of that. But when you look under the hood of what it actually means to grow a small business in this country, it's a lot more complicated, right? People tell you you should raise money from friends and family, but what if you don't have friends or family that can give you $10,000 or $30,000 or $50,000? Where are you going to get it from? And who are the people that are ready to exploit that situation? And how can we make more structures in this country that are actually meaningfully going to support small business? Aurora James is the author of Wildflower. Aurora James, thanks so much for talking to us. I do hope we'll talk again. Mm, I would love to talk again. Thank you so much, Michelle. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are just ahead. And at 745 on Morning Edition, a story about scientists pinpointing a part of the brain that, when stimulated, appears to produce out-of-body experiences. You can tap to follow the news every day on the WBUR app. One tap to listen live anywhere, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in your app store Today, it's 7.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The person suspected of carrying out Monday night's deadly shooting in Philadelphia has been arraigned on charges that include five counts of murder. Police say 40-year-old Kim Brady Carricker was wearing a tactical vest when he opened fire over several blocks armed with an assault-style rifle and a handgun. Four others were injured in the attack, including a two-year-old boy who was shot. In response to the attack, the mayor of Philadelphia says he's suing some of the largest suppliers of so-called ghost guns. They're weapons without serial numbers that can be assembled by the user. These weapons are virtually untraceable because they have no serial number. And they can be purchased without background check, which means anyone, a criminal, a child, anyone, can buy a ghost gun. 
That's Mayor Jim Kenney speaking at a news conference yesterday. The city's deputy police commissioner says the rifle used in the attack was a ghost gun, as was the handgun. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is promising a response to a pre-dawn Russian missile strike targeting the western city of Lviv. At least four people were killed and more than 30 others injured today when cruise missiles struck an apartment building. The top two floors were leveled. The mayor of Lviv says it was the largest attack on the city since Russia invaded Ukraine more than 16 months ago. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is criticizing a pair of city councilors over what he calls troubling accusations. Councilor Kendra Lara was involved in a car crash last week. Police say she was driving an unregistered, uninsured car and did not have a valid license. That follows Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo admitting to an ethics violation for providing legal assistance to his brother, after Arroyo was elected to office. Flynn says residents deserve leaders who show maturity and take responsibility. As the city council president, I can't look the other way when I see troubling behavior from some of my colleagues. And I have an obligation to the residents to speak exactly what I feel and provide the leadership that this council and this body needs and deserves. Councillor Lara's office told WBUR it has no comment. Councillor Arroyo has previously said that his legal representation did not negatively affect the city's interests. The amount of money the state's putting in its rainy day fund this year will be less than expected. State officials estimated that they would deposit one and a half billion dollars into the fund for the fiscal year that ended last week. Now they say it'll be substantially less because of a drop in tax revenues. The exact amount won't be known for a few weeks, but they say the rainy day fund is currently at a historic high with a balance of more than seven billion dollars. The Levitate Music and Arts Festival will celebrate its 10th anniversary in Marshfield this weekend. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports on how the three-day event has grown. Levitate gets its inspiration and name from a surf and skate shop in Marshfield. Owners Jess and Dan Hassett organized the first festival in 2013. He says they had one stage and the event drew about 1,500 people. Now it's 20,000 people, three stages, 100 art vendors. At this point, people come from all over the country, which is really nice. We have all 50 states attend and fly in. and We just try to be what it's all about, which is the community and music and arts. There are 28 acts on this year's Levitate Bill. Brandy Carlisle is headlining, along with Trey Anastasio of Fish and the Duxbury-born reggae act Stick Figure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The time is 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. In sports, Red Sox topped the Texas Rangers 4-2 to at Fenway Park last night. The teams will wrap up their three-game series tonight. Celtics are trading forward Grant Williams to the Dallas Mavericks in a three-team deal. Multiple reports say in exchange the Celtics will get second-round draft picks next year and in 2028. 
In our weather forecast, an air quality alert goes into effect later today for Boston, the North Shore, and the Merrimack Valley. It'll be sunny with highs near 90 today. Clear skies tonight, lows in the 60s, sunny again tomorrow, highs in the upper 80s. 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. A growing number of lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, are pushing for tougher laws to crack down on drug dealers selling fentanyl and xylazine. But if the goal is to actually help people with substance abuse disorder, then there's a growing body of research that suggests that this get-tough approach could do more harm than good. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is with us now to tell us more. Brian, good morning. Good morning. I'm going to ask you to start by reminding us what the stakes are. How big is the problem? I mean, how many people are dying from drug overdoses in the U.S.? Yeah, this is really unlike anything we've seen before in the U.S. Roughly 110,000 drug deaths every year now. The heroin and crack epidemics that people talk about really pale by comparison. So public health experts tell me we've got to get the solutions to this right. I think there's always been a tension between the kind of tough-on-crime approach to addiction and then the public health approach. Is there a way in which this moment is different? Yeah, I think the gap between the two sides is widening again, in part because so many people are dying, that raises the tension. But also, there's just more research showing the criminal justice response may be putting people with addiction actually at greater risk. One new study in the American Journal of Public Health found big drug seizures, big roundups of drug dealers actually causes spikes in overdose deaths. That's because people with addiction wind up searching for new dealers. They wind up buying even more dangerous drugs. I spoke with Jennifer Carroll, who's one of the authors of that study. If the goal is to save lives, then we have pretty good reason to believe that criminalization isn't really serving that purpose very well. And I spoke with one of Carroll's co-authors, Brandon Del Pozo, a former police chief and now a drug policy researcher. He says these tactics put people at risk without cleaning up neighborhoods. There's a long history of big drug arrests followed by press conferences that say this time will be different. This time will make a difference. And except in the very short term where it leads to more overdose, it hasn't made a difference. These researchers say tax dollars and public attention should focus on health care, housing and treatment, not more police. At the same time, a lot of lawmakers in state legislatures and in Congress are pushing for much tougher drug laws and more enforcement. What are they telling you? Yeah, there is a fierce bipartisan push right now for laws that target drug dealers who sell fentanyl. Also, uh, this drug xylazine that's causing overdoses and terrible flesh wounds in users. Uh, I spoke about this with Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a Democrat from Nevada, who says her xylazine bill would help police crack down on traffickers. I can just tell you what I'm seeing and hearing from my law enforcement. It is becoming an emerging threat and a problem we need to get a handle on now and not wait to lose more lives. So what does the senator say about this research that shows that criminalization and crackdowns actually may do more harm than good? Yeah, Senator Cortez Masto is a former attorney general. She was Nevada's top state prosecutor. And she says police have a big role to play in this. Doing nothing is not the answer. 
we do need to stop the trafficking of these drugs and give law enforcement the tools they need. We can't just allow the drugs to come in because we are seeing too many deaths. Critics, of course, say police have been arresting drug dealers since the 1970s, but there are more drug deaths now, more toxic drugs on the streets than ever before. With the two sides so far apart, at least right now, are you hearing anything sort of hopeful or any ideas about what might sound like an actual solution? Yeah. Given all the public fear about drugs, especially fentanyl, experts tell me we are likely to see more cops making more arrests, sending more people to prison. But those same experts tell me they hope this new research will lead to more public health funding. They also hope police departments are going to evolve their tactics, working more closely with public health departments and harm reduction groups. So after a big drug bust, uh, there might be more coordination with people helping those struggling with addiction. Brittany Garrett was a cop for 15 years, and she works now with police departments advising them on drug fighting strategies. We've had a large drug seizure. Now we need to provide outreach and support to the community to help people who are going to be struggling. A lot of people I talked to said if we can get this balance right with the role of police integrated into a wider public health response, it could save a lot of lives and maybe bring those terrible overdose numbers down. That's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Brian, thank you. Thank you. Three San Antonio police officers have been charged with murder in the shooting death of a 46-year-old mother of four last month. Melissa Perez, who had schizophrenia, was suffering from a mental health crisis. Despite officers being trained on dealing with people in crisis, she was killed. Paul Flav with Texas Public Radio reports. In the early hours of June 23rd, police were sent to Melissa Perez's apartment complex on San Antonio's south side. Hey. According to an affidavit, the men found a woman trying to cut the wires on fire alarms because she believed the FBI was listening to her through them. Lady, get over here. When they tried to get her to come with them, she fled to her apartment. This body camera footage shows an officer pursue and try to enter her locked apartment through a window when Perez throws and hits an officer with a glass candlestick. You're going to get shot! It was at this point that Police Chief William McManus says the team should have backed off and called for mental health support. The proper response would have been for them to simply leave and we would deal with it at another time That, in a way that would not have put Ms. Pettis uh, in, a, in the situation that she was in. But he says the mental health unit made up of 16 officers who deal specifically with mental health calls was not requested. And he says the officers on the scene never de-escalated. There were no tactics that were used that would have been appropriate for a mental health call. Instead, within a few minutes, the interaction escalated further, and officers shot Perez, who was brandishing a hammer. This is a wake-up call for San Antonio. Doug Beach is executive director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness for Greater San Antonio. Aside from the small mental health unit, every SAPD officer, including the shooters, have had at least 40 hours of crisis intervention training. So you have to ask yourself, what is going on? What happened? Pettis' family also wants to know how this went so wrong when officers had training. Dan Packard is an attorney who represents the family. It's not as if you have some rogue police officer who was by himself who shot this woman when she was in her own house behind a locked door. Police defend the training and say there are no gaps and that these officers acted contrary to everything they've been taught. But Packard says that's hard to believe. It's just a difficult sell to say our training is pristine and we're a paragon of excellence when, in fact, six different officers are there and nobody said anything, nobody de-escalated. 
I don't know how you can say that, you know, that many people misunderstood the training. The Pettis family plans to sue the city. Meanwhile, San Antonio City Council has put more money towards expanding mental health services, and the police department was already expanding mental health training when this tragedy took place. For NPR News, I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's visit to China starting today. In our forecast, it'll be mostly sunny today, highs around 90 degrees, 90. Tonight, it'll be clear with lows in the 60s, sunshine tomorrow, highs in the upper 80s, and looks like scattered showers both days of the weekend. It's 74 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And by Onova Scientific, a CDMO, providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. Bionova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. In business news, JetBlue is walking away from its planned partnership with American Airlines. In the spring, a judge ruled that the partnership, which focuses on the Northeast, violates antitrust laws. American Airlines wanted to appeal the decision, but JetBlue said yesterday it won't. It's going to focus on its proposed merger with Spirit Airlines. JetBlue is the largest airline at Logan Airport. Cambridge-based Moderna will provide vaccines for China. It signed a deal yesterday aimed at researching, developing, and producing mRNA vaccines in the country. Chinese media report that Moderna may invest up to $1 billion there as part of the deal. Somerville-based Form Energy is looking to get all of its employees under one roof. Leaders of the battery-making company tell the Boston Business Journal the city's convenient for workers who bike, drive, and take the tea. The company is getting state and local economic assistance to help with consolidating offices in Somerville. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. Certain drugs can produce an out-of-body experience. So can a pulse of electricity if it's sent to the right place in the brain. NPR's John Hamilton reports on an area of the brain that seems to keep us attached to our physical selves most of the time. A few years ago, Dr. Yosef Parvizi got a visit from a patient with epilepsy. The man told Parvizi about some very strange symptoms. My sense of self is changing, almost like I am a third observer to conversations that are happening in my mind that I'm not part of. Plus, I just feel like I'm floating, I'm 
in space. Parvizi, a neurology professor at Stanford, was intrigued. He figured the man seizures must be affecting an area of the brain called the PMC. It's hidden in between the two hemispheres in the back. The PMC helps create what's known as our narrative self, a sort of internal autobiography that helps us define who we are. So Parvizi figured the PMC was also responsible for our physical self, which tells us that our body and thoughts belong to us, not someone else. As you are sitting in your chair, you have an understanding that it is you looking at me, your point of view in space and in your environment. That sense of being anchored in your body disappears when you have an out-of-body experience, like the man with epilepsy. Parvizi and a team were able to recreate the man's symptoms by electrically stimulating the PMC. Then they tried the approach on other volunteers. And Parvizi says it became clear that a person's physical self was tied to one particular spot in that special part of the brain. What we discovered is that towards the front, there is this sausage-looking piece of brain called the anterior precuneus. Parvizi's team stimulated the area in eight patients. And lo and behold, everybody has changes in their sense of what we call the physical self. The results appear in the journal Neuron. And Parvizi says they suggest that the anterior precuneus is critical to understanding that something is happening to me, not another person. We think this could be a way for the brain to tag every experience in the environment as mine. Christophe Lopez says that makes sense. He's a researcher at the National Center for Scientific Research in France. Lopez thinks that our physical self comes in part from the inner ear, which senses motion and the body's position in space. He says the anterior precuneus appears to act as a hub for signals coming from the inner ear. When they stimulate these anterior precuneus, you can evoke that the body or the self is floating in the room, like the body is rising or the body is falling, like free fall. As a result, the inner ear may be saying the body is moving, while the eyes say it is stationary. Lopez says that's confusing for the brain. Sometimes the best solution which is found by the brain is to think that you're somewhere else out of the body. It's not just electrical stimulation that can confuse the brain. So can the mind-bending anesthetic, ketamine. Patrick Purden, a researcher at Harvard, has been studying the drug's effects on the brain. He says it acts a lot like brain stimulation when it comes to the anterior precuneus. Purden says that means it might be possible to use electrical pulses in place of anesthetic drugs like ketamine. You could get the specific brain areas that you want without having to cause a brain-wide and system-wide effect that might carry with it a lot of side effects. Purden says stimulating the precuneus might even reproduce ketamine's powerful antidepressant effect, though that's never been tried. John Hamilton, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour on Morning Edition, we take a look at the child care market and ask why both parents and providers are struggling. The time is 10 minutes before 8. At All Things Considered, what unites all our conversations is curiosity. Is he a good hugger? (laughs) Whether we're speaking to an aid worker. What would you want them to know or understand about what you all are dealing with? A scientist. But what's in it for the dolphins? Or a foreign leader. I may, I will ask the questions. I will ask the questions. Questions and answers. Every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in China today trying to ease tensions between that country and the U.S. A Russian missile attack in Ukraine has killed at least four people in a civilian area in the western part of the country. And in Massachusetts, state officials have decided that the new Green Line extension between Lechmere and Union Station will stay open for the summer after initially deciding to close it for repairs. You can stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. In our forecast, mostly sunny skies today, highs up around 90 degrees. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 60s. Sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the upper 80s, and we could see scattered showers both Saturday and Sunday. It is 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The first new nuclear reactor built in the U.S. in more than 40 years is in its final phase of testing in Georgia. After more than a decade of construction and spiraling costs, it's expected to come fully online this month. A second new reactor at Plant Vogel is also nearing completion. WABE's Emily Jones reports on what they mean for the future of nuclear power in the U.S. Since the Nuclear Regulatory Commission approved the Vogel construction in 2012, it's been hailed as the dawn of a new nuclear age by leaders like then-Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. He visited the plant near Augusta as construction got underway. The resurgence of America's nuclear industry starts here in Georgia, where you've just got approval for the first time in three decades to build new nuclear reactors. And leaders of Plant Vogel's majority owner, Georgia Power, say it's still a success story. Chris Womack, the former CEO of Georgia Power and now head of its parent, Southern Company, spoke at the company's annual meeting in May. Yes, we've had our challenges. I'm confident that the state of Georgia and our customers, our company, the world will be so proud of the work that we've done in bringing Vogel online. Each reactor can generate enough electricity to power half a million homes without burning fossil fuels. And that's important. Nearly a third of the country's carbon emissions come from making electricity. To fight climate change, scientists say we need to cut emissions fast. Marilyn Brown of Georgia Tech says Plant Vogel will make a big dent in Georgia's emissions. I'm anticipating something like 5 to 10 percent lower emissions from electricity once those two units are up and running. That's a big number. But in the decade it's taken to build Vogel, it's become a cautionary tale of cascading delays and climbing costs. The first reactor was scheduled to come online in 2016. It's hitting that milestone seven years later. The total price tag has more than doubled to more than $30 billion. Now, utilities are looking at smaller reactors. Those would generate hundreds of megawatts instead of thousands, like Vogel. John Kotek of the Nuclear Energy Institute says after Vogel, utilities are looking for nuclear projects that would have a more reliable cost and schedule. Part of the motivation for the small modular reactors here in the U.S. is that they come with a lower price tag. They're just physically smaller machines that cost less to build. They'll take less time uh, to get into operation. But critics say that was the promise of Vogel, too, that it would be a new kind of reactor that's cheaper and faster to build. 
University of British Columbia physicist M.V. Ramana says there's no reason to think small modular reactors will be different. The lesson I think we should learn from this is what works on the computer doesn't work in the real world. He says Vogel's delays and cost overruns were predictable before construction even started because similar issues have plagued most other nuclear projects. In fact, experts told regulators that the costs could skyrocket back in 2008. And that's exactly what happened. Jennifer Whitfield with the Southern Environmental Law Center says now it means power bills will go up for millions of Georgians. It's absolutely nonsensical that they are going to have to bear the burden of this gamble with this kind of technology. Whitfield says there are more cost-effective ways to decarbonize, like energy efficiency improvements and solar, which is now cheaper than gas, coal, and nuclear. Proponents see nuclear as a complement to renewables, providing power all the time, instead of only when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. But Ramana says solving the climate crisis will require bigger changes. We need to rethink how we're going to manage the grid. And in a way, that's not going to be a silver bullet solution. But here in Georgia, the new reactors are already built. Now it's just a matter of paying for them. For NPR News, I'm Emily Jones in Savannah, Georgia. One ongoing question in child psychology is, what can help kids do better in school? For a long time, researchers have focused on happiness. The thinking goes, when kids feel happier, they tend to get better grades. But now a new study suggests that parents and schools should focus on another aspect of mental health. NPR's Michaeline Duclef has this report. Two years ago, Tanya Clark and her colleagues sent out a survey to teenagers asking about their well-being. She's a psychologist at the University of Cambridge. Our study was conducted with just over 600 adolescents aged 14 to 15 across seven schools in England. She asked them questions about how confident they feel and do they have a sense of purpose. The goal was to see what aspects of mental health are associated with doing well in math and English. One stuck out above the others. Eudaimonia. Eudaimonia? What does that mean? It's about having the opportunity to understand what purpose in life feels like for you, um, having opportunities to cultivate your unique personal strengths and talents. So feeling like you're competent, functioning well, and what you do matters to others. Clark and her colleagues found that the kids who perform really well in math also had higher levels of eudaimonia, about 50% higher. They have a higher sense of purpose, meaning, fulfillment, and competence. The study, which was published in School Psychology Review, does have major limitations. It's relatively small, and it only shows a link to academic performance, not that it actually helps to improve grades. But the study supports a whole slew of other studies looking at how sense of purpose and competence can motivate kids. I find the same thing in, like, huge studies. That's David Yeager. He's a psychologist at the University of Texas at Austin. He says, despite all this evidence, many school systems haven't incorporated it into the classroom. The study is the latest version of an important narrative that has been bubbling up in the scientific literature, but has been mostly ignored in the people who plan our education systems and our narratives about education. He and Tanya Clark say it's time for that to change. Clark says it's time for schools to start cultivating eudaimonia in teenagers. To actually help adolescents make connections between the learning and the wider world, what does this mean for them, 
their interests, their personal goals. And to help them make connections between what they're learning and what they want to do with their lives. Michaeline Ducleff, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In our weather forecast, it'll be mostly sunny today. Highs up around 90 degrees. Clear skies tonight, lows in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow, temperatures in the upper 80s. And looks like some scattered showers in the forecast, both Saturday and Sunday. 74 degrees in Boston at just about 8 o'clock. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has arrived in China for a four-day visit to try to ease tensions with the U.S. It's Thursday, July 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, what's expected from Yellen's visit to China. Also, how Ukraine uses its defense system to guard its capital. They have offered a master class, really, in how to do air defense, and particularly a strategy of air denial. Plus, a look at the child care market and why both parents and providers are struggling, and the Levitate Music Festival returns to Marshfield this weekend. At this point, people come from all over the country, which is really nice. We have all 50 states attend and fly in, and we just try to be what it's all about, which is the community and music and arts. Forecast says sunny, warm today, highs up around 90 degrees. It's 8.01. First, a look at this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A pre-dawn missile attack on an apartment building in western Ukraine has left at least four people dead and more than 30 others injured. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports the mayor of Lviv is calling it the largest attack on civilians in the city since Russia's full-scale invasion 16 months ago. The cobblestone city of Lviv is about as far away from the front line as you can get in Ukraine. It's just 43 miles from the Polish border. But air raid alerts blared early this morning, and loud explosions jolted many awake. Russia launched 10-caliber missiles at the city. Ukraine's air defenses were able to shoot down seven of them. The three missiles that got through damaged 35 buildings and raised the top two floors of one apartment building. Rescue workers are pulling survivors and bodies from the rubble. President Volodymyr Zelensky vowed to respond to the attack. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Lviv. A mother of four suffering a mental health crisis was gunned down in her home by police in Texas as she brandished a hammer. 
Texas Public Radio's Paul Flab reports three police officers are now facing murder charges, and the family is preparing to sue the San Antonio Police Department over its response. Melissa Perez's family is still reeling from her death, and her adult children have hired a lawyer to sue. SAPD acted swiftly to arrest the officers after the incident. The chief of police says it has no gaps in training, but that these officers broke protocol and acted contrary to their training. Attorney for the family, Dan Packard. Six different officers are there and nobody said anything. Nobody de-escalated. I don't know how you can say that, you know, that many people misunderstood the training. He says they plan to sue within days. I'm Paul Flavin, San Antonio. Researchers in the United States reported that Earth experienced its hottest day ever recorded by humans this week. Weather officials say the average global temperature was 62.9 degrees on Wednesday, remaining the same as Tuesday, which beat the previous record set Monday. Hans Henri Clue, the European Regional Director at the World Health Organization, is calling on elected officials and their constituents to take climate change more seriously. The individuals can do something, for example, safe and clean ways of travel, and very important, we need the youth. More than half of the world's population has been impacted by record heat waves in recent weeks, including South and Southeast Asia, Northern China, and parts of Northern America. This is NPR. Today is the deadline for lawmakers in the United Kingdom to appeal a court ruling that struck down a key part of its immigration policy. As NPR's Lauren Frere reports, the government wants to deport migrants to Rwanda. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has ruled out granting asylum to anyone who is undocumented and arrives by boat crossing the English Channel. And he wants to deport them to Rwanda in East Africa. That includes Syrians and Afghans who may have valid asylum claims and may never have set foot anywhere in Africa. The Archbishop of Canterbury has been a leading voice of dissent on this, calling the policy immoral. The European Court of Human Rights has challenged it, too. And last week, the UK Court of Appeals called it unlawful. But as undocumented migrants continue to arrive by boat in record numbers, Sunak has made this a centerpiece of his immigration policy and his re-election strategy. And he wants to take it to the UK Supreme Court. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. Courts across France are working to fast-track the trial dates for more than 3,600 people who were arrested during recent demonstrations. Riots broke out last week after a 17-year-old boy was killed by police during a traffic stop in Paris. Courts will remain open through the weekend with hearings and same-day sentencing. Tensions between protesters and police have calmed down in recent days, but demonstrators continue to call for accountability. I'm Windsor Johnston, and you're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The planned shutdown of a new section of the T's Green Line is being pushed back. Instead of starting this month, the shutdown will happen in the fall. That change came after local lawmakers criticized the T's plan to divert people around the closure. WBUR's Steve Brown reports the closure will let crews do work on a bridge in Somerville. In a statement released late yesterday, a spokesperson for Governor Healy said the administration will reschedule the repairs on Squires Bridge to September. The statement said Mass Department of Transportation crews inspected the bridge over the weekend and determined it's safe to delay the work. 
The MBTA had planned to do the fix this summer, which would have forced the suspension of Green Line service between Lechmere and Union Square from July 18th through August 28th. Healy spokesperson said they're delaying the project so the Green Line closure does not coincide with the Sumner Tunnel closure and to allow appropriate time to explore mitigation options and communicate with the public. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. It may be a while before Massachusetts lawmakers take up a rent control proposal for Boston. House and Senate officials say the measure is not likely to be heard until the fall. The plan was approved by the Boston City Council and the mayor back in March, and lawmakers have not said why they're pushing it back. They say they will take up the proposal before February's deadline. Today is day two of the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. Most drivers will use the Ted Williams Tunnel to get from East Boston to down. Downtown. Right now, the backup to get into the tunnel begins at Route 145 in East Boston. As a reminder, the blue line of the T will be free. While the tunnel is closed, the East Boston Ferry is free as well. We have a guide to help you get around the Sumner closure on the front page of WBUR.org. New research from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution suggests that female bottlenose dolphins communicate with their babies at a higher pitch. Human moms do something similar with their children. And as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, this is the first time it's been documented in another mammal. Bottlenose dolphins each have their own distinctive whistle, like this. But when dolphin moms whistle to their babies, it's higher pitched, kind of like human moms. Study author Layla Saig says all 19 dolphins they tested did this, although they're not sure why. We don't try to say anything about whether it actually is functioning in the same way as human mother eats, because we, we really have no way to speak to that. But she says it might mean that motherese can promote bonding and language learning in dolphins as well as humans. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The time is eight minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. In sports, Red Sox beat the Texas Rangers 4-2 to at Fenway last night. Boston has now won four of its last five games. The Sox and Rangers play again tonight. And our weather forecast. An air quality alert goes into effect later today for Boston, the North Shore, and the Merrimack Valley. It's going to be sunny and up around 90 degrees today. Clear skies overnight tonight with lows in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow. Temperatures in the upper 80s, but we may see scattered showers both days this weekend. It's 74 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is the second U.S. cabinet official to visit Beijing in a month. On the heels of a trip by Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Yellen has an agenda that includes meetings with China's new premier and other top officials who have a hand in the economy. The last time a U.S. Treasury Secretary visited China, Washington and Beijing were in a trade war. Since then, the trade relationship is even more strained. So can the U.S. and China compete while they also cooperate? NPR's international correspondent Emily Fang has been following all of this from Taiwan. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. So what does Yellen hope to achieve with this trip, and, and what's, what's she up against? 
Well, she's up against a lot, and I'm having a little bit of deja vu, actually, because I started reporting on China for NPR in 2019. And as you mentioned, the trade war was in its most intense period at that point. Uh, But all the issues that Yellen is up against are from that time period. And Chad P. Brown has been tracking those tariffs that were imposed during that trade war. He's a trade expert at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. And almost four years later, as Yellen lands in China today, he says this. The U.S.-China trade relationship is basically unchanged. None of the tariffs that were imposed or that were in place as of when the President Trump's phase one agreement went into effect, none of those have been removed. That's because the Biden administration chose to keep these 25 percent tariffs on Chinese goods coming to the U.S. and vice versa. And so Yellen faces all these old challenges. And on top of that, you have new sources of friction. For example, American export controls to prevent China from getting certain advanced semiconductor technology. And so Brown says Yellen needs to talk about not just trade imbalances now with China, but also national security concerns. When President Trump was conducting his trade war, it seemed to just be all about the U.S.-China economic relationship in trade. Now it's not. Now it's about geopolitical conflict, military conflict, potentially Taiwan, Hong Kong. Wow, there are so many things that the two sides disagree on. What can the U.S. and China agree on? Well, at least they both say they want to talk. But again, American officials are really downplaying expectations for her trip. They say that this is just to maintain contact so the two sides understand each other, even if they disagree with each other. Uh, Yellen's also in China this week to try to convince China that these export controls that China hates, uh, the fact that U.S. companies are moving some of their supply chains away from China, This is being done to protect U.S. interests, uh, just as China does things to protect its interests that the U.S. also doesn't like. And she's trying to convince China that this is not meant to completely decouple the two economies. And in fact, the two countries have a lot to cooperate on, for example, Hmm. combating climate change and addressing global debt. Yeah. And do we have any idea whether she can make any headway on, on those objectives? That's the question. Really, there's only so much she can do, because right now, if you're a foreign business in China, The trends are pretty worrying. China's passed these new laws that can let them sanction foreign companies. There are new data control laws that make it really hard for companies to operate even there. Add to that, there's a new counter-espionage law passed this year that's so broad. American businesses are genuinely concerned that their normal activities could get them accused of being spies. NPR's Emily Fang in Taipei, thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Russian missiles killed at least four people in the Ukrainian city of Lviv today. Officials say it was the heaviest attack on the city's civilian area since the start of the war. Drone and missile attacks happen almost every night, but Ukraine manages to shoot down the vast majority of these incoming Russian weapons. And that's because of an air defense team guarding the capital, Kiev. NPR's Greg Myrie was recently given rare access. When Russia launches an airstrike on Kyiv, the first line of defense is parked here in this sprawling field of hay and bright red poppies outside the capital. The protection consists of two Ukrainian soldiers and their American-made Humvee with a U.S. Stinger missile system mounted on back. The ground is littered with cigarette butts, evidence that the pair endures long spells of tedium punctuated by a few minutes of surging adrenaline. This is a cat mouse game. Dimitro is an army lieutenant who brought me here. Like most all Ukrainian troops, he gives just one name. Russians try to find weak spots. We try to cover all them up. Because this mobile unit is a first barrier 
for the rockets. One member of this air defense team is Yuri, who explains how they limit the damage inflicted by Russia's relentless air attacks. We received the alert that we need to look for certain projectiles. It could be a missile, a plane, a drone, whatever. Then we have seven minutes to get ready. If they fire a Stinger missile, that gives away their position to the Russians. They have to flee quickly, a tactic known as shoot and scoot. Russia launches most of its airstrikes after dark, so the Ukrainian teams routinely work through the night. The last few months were quite intense. We were sleeping about two hours per night. We were so exhausted. We could sleep anywhere, in the Humvee or on the ground. His partner, Serhi, says he's fired off eight Stinger rounds in total. He missed twice. He says the other six were direct hits. They're recorded in white paint on the side of the camouflaged Humvee. One fighter jet, one helicopter, one missile, and three drones. Ukraine's air defense has been extremely effective since Russia's full-scale invasion 16 months ago. But Kelly Greco at the Stimson Center in Washington says that wasn't a sure thing at first, given Russia's much larger air force. They have offered a master class, really in how to do air defense and particularly a strategy of air denial of, of knowing that you're at a disadvantage and they've played their hand really well. Ukraine initially relied on an old Soviet system, the S-300. But Ukraine ran low on missiles and the only place that makes them is Russia. Russia tries to exploit this shortage, unleashing thousands of missiles and drones, knowing most will get shot down. I think you're trying to first and foremost, exhaust Ukrainian ammunition. Because if you can't destroy the launchers, if you can cause them to run empty, it's the same effect. In response, the U.S. and other NATO countries are supplying Ukraine with a range of Western air defense systems. Here's U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking recently. We remain laser focused on meeting Ukraine's urgent needs for ground-based air defense systems. Ukraine's air defenders have saved countless lives. Ukraine says it's now shooting down incoming missiles and drones at a rate of around 90 percent. In Kyiv, the best protected city, the figure is even higher. The capital has several layers of air defense. These small Stinger crews form the front line. One reason? Their missiles are much cheaper than the alternative. Stingers cost around $40,000 a pop. The U.S. Patriot system, a last line of defense, shoots missiles that run about $4 million each. Right now, these systems are set to defend Ukraine's cities. But if Ukraine's ground troops advance in their current offensive, they'll need air defenses to go with them. Ukraine could move these mobile crews with the troops, but that would reduce protection for the cities. Again, Kelly Greco. Ukraine is probably having to rethink right now, actually, about whether to keep those protecting the cities or if they really need to bring them to the front in order to give their counteroffensive a better chance of success. Hard decisions, but they may be necessary ones. Still, Ukrainians remain confident. Dimitro, the lieutenant, recalls Moscow's long, unhappy history with Stinger missiles dating to Afghanistan in the 1980s. The U.S. then gave Stingers to Afghan rebels, and they were hugely effective in taking down Soviet helicopters. Uh, Russians uh, keeping putting their nose where they don't belong, and they are not welcome here. So we're going to throw at them everything we have. So far, that's been enough to keep the Russians from gaining air superiority. Greg Myrie, NPR News, 
outside of Kyiv. Colorado lawmakers expect new legal challenges that will test the state's anti-discrimination laws. This after a U.S. Supreme Court ruling allowed a web designer from Colorado to refuse her services to gay couples. Colorado Public Radio's Allison Sherry reports. Lori Smith sued the state because she wanted to start making wedding websites, but not for gay weddings. State anti-discrimination laws say she can't make that distinction. The high court disagreed, saying a creative business can't be forced to craft messages they don't believe in. Smith says the case wasn't about who she would or wouldn't work for, but what she was being asked to say. And today's ruling affirmed that the government cannot force anyone to say something they don't believe. Historically in Colorado for over 100 years, if you're a business and you open up your doors, you have to serve everybody. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. Now we have this exception. People may take advantage of this exception. Weiser, whose office defended Colorado's anti-discrimination laws before the high court, says its decision creates a big loophole nationwide. He says there's nothing immediately to be done legally, but he's watching out for businesses that may use this Supreme Court decision as an excuse to discriminate against anyone. A problem, Weiser says, is that the court didn't exactly define what a creative business is. It could be a photographer who says, I won't photograph women because I don't believe they should work. Or a religious bookseller who says, I won't sell to one religious group because I don't think they're real religion. Those cases will have to get determined. Ultimately, I don't believe this ruling is sustainable. I don't believe it's justified. So I believe it will be overturned eventually. At a recent press conference, Shara Smith says when she first read the high court decision, she thought it was bad for LGBTQ populations and then thought, as a black woman and head of Colorado's Interfaith Alliance, that the decision is bad for her, too. It's also bad for people of color, for immigrants, for marginalized groups, for all of us, because this decision allows businesses to use free speech in order to turn away customers they would rather not serve. Legal experts expect civil lawsuits across the country as states grapple with whether a business qualifies as creative enough to turn away clients for free speech reasons, or whether they're just plain discriminating, which is still technically against the law. For NPR News, I'm Allison Sherry in Denver. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, prospective electric vehicle owners say their top concern right now is the availability of charging stations. It's 21 minutes past 8. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com Generations of Americans have been told that in work, they'd find their meaning. Many Americans are looking to the workplace, the place where they spend the majority of their hours, as a means of self-actualization and community and purpose. But if your job is your identity and you lose your job, what's left? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Forecast says mostly sunny today. Highs near 90 degrees. It's 77 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. 
This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at MelvilleTrust.org. From EBSCO, currently hiring and committed to letting people thrive. Information about hybrid and remote positions is at careers.ebsco.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmidt. And I'm Michelle Martin. You've probably heard stories about how hard it is to get childcare if you can't afford it. But all over the country, there are people who can and are willing to pay, and they still aren't getting it. Sarah Gonzalez with our Planet Money podcast explains that parents, daycare workers, and daycare owners are all trapped in a very weird, very broken market. For months, Wesley Wade and his wife ended their days the same way. We're Googling. We're on wait lists at multiple places. Trying to find daycare for their youngest daughter. My wife and I are divvying up our area geographically, and we're spending all this extra time when we, you know, still have to cook dinner, maintain the house, you know, give our kids love, (laughs) spend time for ourselves. And this family is not in, like, a daycare desert. They are in Durham, North Carolina. Big university town, a lot of jobs, a lot of people. Wesley is a mental health counselor, getting his Ph.D. His wife is an attorney. They are both pretty good at researching. They just can't find a spot. They are lowering their standards. There were places that we never considered for our first child. You're like, oh, no, my baby is going to be in the most pristine care, right? That we said, okay. If they're, if they're able, if they're open, because your options are limited. But even the places they definitely did not want to send their two daughters to were full. So I actually ended up leaving my full-time job just so I could be the flexible parent that can stay home. This is a person who wants to pay for a service, who has the money, but can't. He was being put on wait lists, six months, nine months. In traditional economics, wait lists are a sign that something isn't right. It actually means that the price is too low. But how can that be? Take any childcare spot like this one in Iowa. So we call ourselves Bluff's Little Thinkers. Bluff's. Yep, like Sergeant Bluff. Who's Sergeant Bluff? So Sergeant Bluff is our town, like the suburb, yep. Oh. Kelsey Anderson is the director of Bluff's Little Thinkers. They have babies from six weeks old to five years old. Yep, the six weeks old is the youngest that they can come, for yep. sure. No, 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 no. And childcare for infants, for the baby babies, is the most expensive for parents and for daycares. Okay, let's talk about your books. So I do have a printout here oh, okay. of the books. So like anywhere between forty to 55000 for a deposit. Like, for the month. Deposits are what parents pay you? Yes, yep. Um, and then how much money do you pay in, in labor? Our payrolls as monthly would definitely be over 30000 In a month when they're bringing in $40,000 from parents, $33,000 goes to labor. It's more than 80% of their costs. In other industries, like, say, fast food, labor is like 25% of total costs. And if you're thinking, eh, 
at least daycare workers are getting paid well, right? Well, they are not. Kelsey pays $12 to $15 an hour. Is that enough to, you know, really get by in, in Sergeant Bluff? It's not a livable wage. It's no, absolutely okay. not a livable wage in any way, shape, or form. In Sergeant Bluff, Iowa, or in Durham, North Carolina, you can make more money walking someone's dog than taking care of their kid or being a parking attendant, working in retail. Yep, yep. So Starbucks, Target, I mean, just anything that we have they in our— all pay more? Oh, absolutely. Like, I saw a Chick-fil-A sign the other day that said starting at sixteen seventy-five. But Kelsey says she can't pay as much as these stores do because she has a lot more people to pay. In childcare, there are laws about child-teacher ratios. For Kelsey's 72 kids, she needs 25 people on staff. Jessica Brown is an economics professor at the University of South Carolina's Business School, and she's a mom of four. Yeah, the baby's three weeks old. Wait, he's three weeks old? Mm-hmm. I feel like I should not be talking to you. <laughs> you of all people should be like, no, I'm drawing a line. <laughs> I'm not good about that. <laughs> Jessica decided to study the childcare market when she was getting her PhD in economics at Princeton, while looking for childcare and not finding any. If we had, you know, perfect markets, then the markets should adjust and the supply should come up, um, but it's not. Theoretically, the supply problem should kind of solve itself. If daycares charged more to take care of kids, that would make more childcare centers open up. Yes, it would price some parents out of childcare, but in cold, hard econ land, you would say, oh, well, we're making a profit. Sorry, parents. But this is not happening. And so there's something else going on. Jessica says if the price of daycare goes past a certain point, some families will say, well, we're not going to pay that. We'll just find a cheaper option or we'll hire a nanny. And this threat of outside options of, of nannies keeps a ceiling on what daycares can charge. Jessica says having a wait list actually is kind of the only way that childcare centers can afford to stay in business. Childcare facilities rely on having full enrollment um, basically at all times. They can't afford to have unfilled seats. So childcare facilities rely on having a wait list so that when a child leaves, they're able to fill that slot with someone from the wait list. By the way, Wesley's daughters did eventually get off a wait list. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Levitate Festival returns to Marshfield this weekend, celebrating its 10th birthday. You can tap to follow the news each day on the WBUR app. One tap to listen live anywhere, another tap to pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in your app store today. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing for several days of meetings. She's expected to hold talks tomorrow with China's premier. Treasury officials have said Yellen is not scheduled to meet with China's President Xi Jinping, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken did on his recent visit to Beijing. The U.S. ambassador to Ukraine says today's Russian missile strike on an apartment building in Lviv is another horrifying attack by Moscow targeting civilians. At least four people were killed. More than 30 others were injured. The top two floors of the building were destroyed by cruise missiles. Many vehicles on the streets below were damaged. Dr. Sasha Dovzik is a curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London. She says Lviv is where many Ukrainians have sought refuge from Russia's invasion. It is one of those places where many Ukrainians affected by the war in eastern and southern territories flee. It's where many displaced Ukrainians are currently based. This city is considered one of the safest in Ukraine, but as we know, When Russia declared its full-scale war on Ukraine, there is no such safe place in the country anymore, unfortunately. Dovzik was speaking to the BBC. Ukraine's president is promising a response. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Some community groups are testing a new tool to try to reduce the growing threat of xylazine. That's an animal tranquilizer that's been found in about 20 percent of drug samples in Massachusetts. More from WBUR's Martha Biebinger. Xylazine can cause gaping skin wounds, prolong an overdose, and increase the risk of death. It's typically combined with fentanyl to extend the effects of a high. A Canadian company just started producing xylazine test strips that can be used on the streets. Dr. Julia Fleming works at Fenway Health, which is handing them out in Cambridge. It's a great opportunity to help our clients keep themselves safe while they're using drugs by identifying if there's any xylazine in the substances that they're going to be using. A study out of Philadelphia this spring showed the strips were more than 80 percent accurate, but did sometimes detect drugs other than xylazine. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Legal ethics experts say the misconduct of former Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rawlins is unprecedented and could result in the loss of her license to practice law. Rawlins resigned in May after investigators found that she tried to influence a local election by leaking information and lying about it. The federal investigators declined to prosecute Rawlins. The legal experts tell the Boston Globe that the state board that disciplines Massachusetts attorneys would base any potential punishment on previous cases, but there are few that are comparable. Punishments could range anywhere from a license suspension to full disbarment. The State Board of Bar Overseers says it doesn't comment on pending cases. Mental health professionals will join Worcester Police on some emergency calls. It's part of a pilot program launching in the city this week. It's meant to help law enforcement respond to people who are experiencing a behavior
behavioral health crisis. 911 operators will determine if a mental health or substance use counselor should be dispatched to emergencies along with police. The time is 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage. Employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. In sports, Red Sox topped the Rangers 4-2 to at Fenway Park last night. The teams wrap up their three-game series tonight. And our weather forecast, mostly sunny today. Highs up around 90 degrees. An air quality alert goes into effect later today for Boston, the North Shore, and the Merrimack Valley. Tonight should be clear with lows going down into the 60s and sunny again tomorrow. Highs in the upper 80s. Right now for the weekend, looks like scattered showers Saturday and Sunday. It is 77 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmidt. Israel's far-right government is facing more protests. Demonstrations last night blocked roads and highways following the resignation of Tel Aviv's police chief due to political pressure. Earlier yesterday, thousands marched in Janine for the funeral of at least a dozen Palestinians killed during Israel's two-day incursion in the occupied West Bank city. One Israeli soldier was also killed during the military operation. Questions remain about what was achieved. Joining me now is Khaled El-Gindi. He's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and directs its Israeli-Palestinian Affairs program. Good morning. Good morning. So this was the largest incursion in the West Bank in almost two decades. What was Israel's strategy here? Well, the context for this is uh, for the past year and a half, there's been a, a basically an armed rebellion in uh, concentrated in the northern West Bank, uh, particularly around Janine and Nablus uh, cities. Uh, and uh, things have escalated particularly since this new uh, extreme government came in uh, in Israel. And in the last few weeks, there's been another escalation um, in that Palestinian militants have, uh, have used a number of uh, explosive devices that have destroyed uh, some, uh, uh, some army personnel and uh, some jeeps. Uh, and uh, this is an attempt really by the Israeli army to crush this rebellion that is centered uh, in in uh, places like Jenin. So, I mean, as you mentioned, this is the most right-wing government in Israel's history. Prime Minister yeah. Benjamin Netanyahu vowed that the expansion of Jewish settlements would continue in the West Bank. Does this incursion pave the way for that? Well, it certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, it's, it's really part and parcel of, uh, I think, this this extreme government's agenda is to expand settlements. They've been quite vocal, not only about their intention to expand settlements, but to basically annex uh, the West Bank. Uh, and there is no political process in place. Uh, Palestinians have felt a sense of uh, despair. Uh, and 
Israel needs to use more and more violence in order to maintain its its occupation. So Israel has said it has to do these raids because the Palestinian security forces are not reining in the militias that we were talking about earlier. Do Palestinian leaders have the power and incentive to do that? Well, they really don't. And what we've seen, especially over the last year and a half, the Palestinian Authority has basically lost control in in both of these cities, but particularly in, in Janine. Um, and they lost control not because they don't want to control the situation, for for many years, the uh, the Palestinian Authority has been able to keep the calm in the West Bank, uh, and and unlike places like Jerusalem and Gaza, for example, the West Bank has been relatively calm in large part because of the 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 PA's uh, sec- security uh, cooperation. Um, but the the Palestinian leadership has basically lost credibility with. Uh, with its people, and they're seen as a kind of collaborationist uh, regime. And so they've been driven out of places like Janine. That's Khaled El-Gindi, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. More than half of all Americans say they're at least thinking about an electric vehicle for their next car purchase. But they want to know, where will they plug them in? A big sticking point is the lack of public EV chargers. NPR's Camila Domanowski thinks about this problem a lot, even on a road trip she took last week with the Secretary of Energy. Camila's back from that and with us now. Hello. Hi, Rob. How important is the availability of fast chargers that people can find on the road? Yeah, it's it's funny because the vast majority of electric vehicle charging actually happens at people's homes or maybe their work. But psychologically, chargers on the road are really important. Americans love a road trip. Studies actually show this is the number one barrier keeping people from buying electric vehicles, even ahead of sticker price. So what's the state of America's EV charging infrastructure then? It's not great. Um, so last week, like you mentioned, the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, went on this road trip through the South, and I was tagging along. Mm-hmm. We were traveling in electric vehicles, and I want to play you some tape from one charging stop that the Secretary took in Tennessee. This is Secretary Granholm. Clearly, we need more uh, high-speed chargers. Particularly. We were sitting in the back seat of an electric Cadillac Lyric and went on to talk about this federal push to incentivize chargers and green manufacturing. It has been a blockbuster. But then Granholm gestured at her press secretary, fanning herself. Asking for some air conditioning here because it is hot. Her staff had actually turned off the AC to try to make the car charge faster. This was one of several charging stops where charging went much slower than it should have. Seriously, though. Yeah, it's really hot. No, no, no. Can you open the door? So we actually interrupted the interview at this point to step outside the vehicle. Oh, man. Okay, so that's, that doesn't sound great. And this was during a big heat wave, though, right? I mean, we covered that, a reminder of what's at stake here. Right. Ultimately, this is about climate change. Getting people to adopt EVs is a big part of, of the push to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You do need people to be on board. Right. Right. And and people are buying EVs increasingly. People like Holmes at a green. She's from Louisville, Kentucky, and she was waiting in the shade by that electric vehicle charger while her Volkswagen ID4 was charging. And she loves that car. But it is kind of slow charging it up. Other than that, 
I, would, I wouldn't take $1,000 for this car. <laughs> she wouldn't sell it for $100,000, wow. she says. But she also says there just aren't enough chargers. And this is really the situation right now, right? The chargers aren't fast enough, they aren't reliable enough, and there simply are not enough of them. Lots of problems. What's being done about this? Well, on the tech front, there are two fast charging standards, Tesla's and everyone else's. Tesla's chargers, this is not just my opinion here, Rob, this is this is data. Okay. They are better, they're more reliable. Huh. Other companies are now embracing Tesla's charging standard, which is a, a brand new, very interesting development. But the biggest thing that's happening is that there's just a push to build more of them. The federal government is spending billions of dollars on it. Is that going to be enough? It really depends on who you ask, right? Car companies are going electric. The federal government could potentially speed that up. There are proposed standards that could mean two thirds of new vehicles are electric by 2032. The big traditional automakers, their lobbying group is currently saying that's simply not feasible, that the need for more chargers is one reason why they say they need more time. Hmm. Environmental groups, all electric automakers, they say the speed is doable. And they point to things like all the money that's going into chargers. Now, these federal rules are being hammered out, to, so to a certain extent, this is all negotiating positions. But one thing everyone agrees on is that we're going to need more of the things. NPR's Camila Dominowski, thank you. Thanks. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. And coming up in about 10 minutes on Morning Edition, the Marketplace Morning Report, there will be a story about rising health care costs. One estimate suggests that next year, health care costs will increase by about 7 percent. Our weather forecast, mostly sunny today, highs around 90 degrees. Clear skies tonight with lows in the 60s and sunny again tomorrow. Highs in the upper 80s. It's 77 degrees. In Boston. In business news, Boston area hotels are looking to fill more than 1,600 open jobs. But the American Hotel and Lodging Association says hotels are having a tough time filling positions as the summer travel season heats up. WBUR's Zeninjor and Wameka reports. The hotel sector was hard hit by the pandemic. Now it's trying to get workers back as travel and tourism picks up. Chip Rogers is president of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. He says hotels need to fill a variety of jobs. Basically every department, if you think about marketing, you think about security, uh, you think about sales, they're all open. But the number one position is an entry-level position. That's that's working in rooms, in, in cleaning rooms. That's the number one position that hotels are having a difficult time filling right now. Rogers says hotels are offering higher wages, sign-on bonuses, free meals, and other incentives to try to attract more applicants. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available, service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Summer music festival season is in full swing, and each event has its own personality. The Levitate Festival in Marshfield has a broad appeal, offering jam bands and reggae and a family-friendly homegrown festival. This weekend marks 10 years since the event was born at a skate and surf shop. WBUR's Andrea Shea has the festival's backstory. Dan Hassett gets giddy as he careens around in a golf cart at the historic Marshfield Fairgrounds. I came here as a kid going to the fair. I always loved the place, and then we started this festival. We had no idea it was going to grow to the scale it is now. The Levitate Music Festival draws 20,000 people a day over its long weekend. Ten years ago, Hassett says promoters were skeptical this dusty vintage venue could even host a concert. About 1,500 fans turned out for the first fest, which got its inspiration and name from a local surf and skate shop. So this room here is the original part of the surf shop, and uh, it was just this little 15 by 20 foot room. Hassett grew up in Hanover and picked up surfing from his dad. At 17, he started working for a charismatic wave rider named Bob Pollard, who opened Levitate in 2003. He founded the shop with the intention of it being kind of a little community hub, and it was. And he ran it for three years until he had health complications and passed away at a very young age. Uh, He was 34 at the time. The loss hit the community hard. So Hassett asked Pollard's widow if he could buy his mentor's store. We've tried to, since then, carry on his mission about what Levitate's supposed to be all about. And it just slowly evolved. We got more into events, and we did little surf movie nights or small concerts, uh, beach cleanups. Then Hassett met Jess Horton. I was actually working at an art gallery in Duxbury, and we had a skateboard art show. And we were looking for a, a surf and skate shop to be a sponsor and help us source the skateboards. Well, the graphic artist and the surfer hit it off, got married, and began expanding the shop's spirit. Jess designed a sustainable lifestyle apparel brand, and they started creativity surf and skate programs for kids. In 2013, the couple wanted to celebrate the shop's 10th birthday with a bash for the local community, and the Levitate Music and Arts Festival was born. Now it's 20,000 people, three stages, 100 art vendors. At this point, people come from all over the country, which is really nice. We have all 50 states attend and fly in. And we just try to be what it's all about, which is the community and music and arts. Muralists paint large-scale works live throughout the weekend. Emerging local bands share the bill with big names that have included the original Whalers and Phil Lesh of the Grateful Dead. Dan says the reggae and jam-infused lineup helps set the tone. Really, really upbeat generally, very positive, so it is a really good like environment and vibe to the entire event. Levitate's employees bring their own positive energy to the festival by pitching in each year. Pat Collins, an avid surfer, says it's always a blast. 
I see my friends, I see my friends' parents, I see young families with little kids, and then I see people that, like, you can tell love festivals, like, come with their hula hoops, they're psyched, you know what I mean? So it's a really cool mix. The surf shop's extended community also comes together. Pembroke native Nora Vasconcelos worked at Levitate as a teen, surfed with Dan Hassett, and practiced skating at the park outside. Now the 31-year-old is a world champion skateboarder and the first woman on Adidas's team. Surfers and skateboarders, they have such a small space in our South Shore community, but I think it's pretty incredible that those are the people who have created this like immensely successful and accessible thing now. This year, Vasconcelos is coming back home from California for her first festival, where she'll be riding the ramp on site. We're going to be skateboarding. Vasconcelos will be leading community skate jams, demos, and lessons for kids. She's proud that Levitate is keeping shop founder Bob Pollard's legacy alive and marvels at the Hassett's vision. Even as their festival has swelled in size and scope, Jess Hassett says it's still homegrown. Marshfield is a small town, and having all these huge musicians and artists come and giving them the opportunity to see that is really special. I'd actually say it's my favorite part of being a part of Levitate is having the opportunity to show that to our community. She's especially stoked Brandy Carlisle is headlining this year, along with Trey Anastasio of the band Fish and the Duxbury-born reggae act Stick Figure, who've played at Levitate since year one. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on Russia's latest missile strike in Ukraine and a look at the launch of Threads, which is Facebook's attempt to compete with Twitter. It's nine minutes before nine. At All Things Considered, what unites all our conversations is curiosity. Is he a good hugger? (laughs) Whether we're speaking to an aid worker. What would you want them to know or understand about what you all are dealing with? A scientist. But what's in it for the dolphins? Or a foreign leader. I will ask the questions. I will ask the questions. Questions and answers. Every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. You are listening to 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The president of Belarus says the mercenary leader who led a short-lived uprising against the Russian government is still in Russia. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing for a four-day visit to try to improve relations between the U.S. and China. And researchers in Maine say the Earth set a record-high average temperature yesterday for the second day in in a row, reaching nearly 63 degrees. Stay up to date on all the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. In our forecast, sunny today, highs near 90 degrees. 
Toyota says it's closing in on quite the electric, electric car battery. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. I'm David Brancaccio. First, Janet Yellen has arrived in Beijing. It's her first trip to China as U.S. Treasury Secretary, and she's the second senior official from the Biden administration to make the journey in recent weeks. Marketplace's Jennifer Pack reports from Beijing Capital Airport. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen arrives in 100-degree weather in Beijing. But that's not the only thing heating up. Days before, China announced controls on exports of two key metals needed to make semiconductors. This is seen as retaliation for the U.S. limiting Chinese companies from accessing sensitive technologies from America. According to an editorial from government media China Daily, Yellen's visit will hopefully prevent the relationship from, quote, spiraling out of control. China is not happy with attempts by the U.S. to, quote, suppress and contain its rise, like when the Biden administration sanctioned Chinese firms, continues to maintain U.S. tariffs on Chinese exports, and is shifting supply chains away from mainland China. The U.S.'s economic concerns revolve around getting China to play fair with things like government subsidies to Chinese firms or the extent of industrial espionage. China has also broadened its anti-spying law, which American firms worry could make ordinary information gathering illegal. It's a long list, but many analysts say the act of talking is key. In Beijing, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. I'm looking at the U.S. 10-year interest rate running quite high this morning. It's now above 4%, the highest since early March. This after we got the private sector payroll data for June today from the processor ADP. Almost 500,000 more people were on payrolls in June. That is more than double what was forecast. Point number one, the job market's very strong, which is good for workers. Point two, higher interest rates to curb inflation are coming. S&P futures are now down seven-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures down nine-tenths of a percent. Toyota is promising a battery breakthrough. It hopes will be a turning point for electric vehicles. The world's largest automaker is reporting progress making EV batteries lighter, smaller, and cheaper in ways that could dramatically extend the range of electric vehicles. Toyota hasn't plunged fully into all electrics, preferring hybrids instead, but that could soon change. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more. It's been more than 25 years since Toyota introduced the hybrid Prius, paving the way for a mass-market electric car. But then... Of course, Tesla came in and, you know, took over that crown. That's Jessica Caldwell, executive director of Insights at Edmunds. She says Toyota is trying to put itself back on top by announcing a new technology in the works, an affordable solid-state battery that would replace the liquid lithium-ion batteries now standard in EVs. That's something companies across the industry have raced to develop for years. They're very efficient. They can offer extremely long ranges, pretty much solving a lot of the issues that consumers would have with buying an electric vehicle. That technology would be a game changer for Toyota, says Michelle Krebs, executive analyst at Cox Automotive. If it is successful with this kind of battery, it will leapfrog some of the other automakers. But there are a lot of ifs on the way to that success. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. 
The oil producers cartel OPEC is under new pressure to neutralize the climate impact of the oil and gas industry itself. The head of this year's round of United Nations climate talks told OPEC members in Vienna today that the industry needs to become net zero by 2050 and net zero on methane, an especially potent contributor to climate change, by the year 2030. Note this is about the oil and gas industry getting to the point where it's compensating for its own greenhouse gas emissions. The climate effects of all the oil and gas produced is a much larger challenge. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Healthcare costs are projected to go up again next year by 7% using a calculation by the auditing consulting firm PwC. General inflation and shortage of people to hire are part of this, and if you have insurance through work, there is likely a committee that will decide to what extent these costs get passed on to you. Marketplace's Ellie Budner explains. In the decade before COVID, medical costs were actually declining. Then they spiked during the pandemic and went down a bit after. But for the last couple of years, the cost of healthcare has been on the rise. That's all according to the PwC report. It's the impact of inflation on healthcare providers. Tom Bales was an author on the report. He says the cost of medical equipment has gone up, and so have provider wages. The healthcare sector has been squeezed by pandemic burnout and labor shortages. And, Bales says, pharmaceutical drugs are also more costly. The median price of a new drug brought to market last year was actually quite expensive. It was about $200,000 or so. Bales says there are a couple of things that could help with medical costs. There's biosimilars, which are molecules for drugs that have come off patent that become available, and they are often available at 50% lower than the branded drug. Plus, Bale says, providers are finding ways to cut costs more these days, too, making use of lower-cost facilities, home health care, and telemedicine. But overall, health care costs are still going up. So who's going to feel it the most? Cynthia Cox with the Kaiser Family Foundation says part of that depends on how employers react to rising costs. So if employers shift these healthcare costs onto their employees by raising deductibles, then that could certainly impact access to care. Cox says employers could also choose to offset higher premium prices by lowering costs in other areas, say by deferring raises or bonuses. Dana Goldman co-directs the Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics at the University of Southern California. I would say the working middle class are the ones who will probably be stretched the most. He says the underinsured and uninsured, people who have high deductibles or who pay out of pocket, will certainly feel the pinch. But Goldman says he's cautious about health cost predictions. I do think there are these inflationary pressures that are tied to the labor market, and so you will see that in the next year. But he doesn't necessarily think these price increases are here for the long term. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. And you're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. 
And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Our forecast and air quality alert goes into effect later today for Boston, the North Shore, and the Merrimack Valley. It'll be sunny today, highs near 90. Clear tonight, lows in the 60s, sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the upper 80s. It is 77 degrees right now in Boston at 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is just ahead. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.